Thank you, Kennedy. Let's pray real quick. Father, thank you for your word that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, that you're a God who speaks to your people, and you say in your word that um, your word, it never returns back to you void. It always accomplishes that which you sent it out to accomplish. And so, Father, we come to sit under that word and to ask for you to speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you move with great power among us? And would this time grow us more into the image of your Son? It's in his name I pray and ask these things. Amen. And so, what's up, everybody? We are back for the final college gathering of the fall. Um, Before you know it, it'll be Christmas. I, I forgot how many days. I think we're 20 days away now. Um, I've been counting since about 100 days. So uh, let's finish this thing strong. And really, what a semester it's been. We've been journeying through Romans 8 since August. Just think about that for a second. I really do hope that you've enjoyed walking through um, this chapter together. I hope that it's grown your love for Jesus. Um, It's grown your understanding and your experience of his grace towards you um, in Christ Jesus. And tonight, we're going to wrap up this series uh, by coming to a passage that's probably the most popular part of, the, of this chapter of, of Romans. Um, if not one of the most popular passages in all of the New Testament, Romans 8, 31 through 39. And I can think of no better way that Paul could have maybe closed this chapter or this section of his work in Romans. And in our time tonight, Paul, he's not just summing up Romans 8. So this is not just the summation of his, I guess, argument or his theology of Romans 8, but it's also a summing up of the truths that he's been expounding on all the way since Romans 1.16. All the way since Romans 1. Um, And he's going to bring that together. He's going to apply it to us. He's going to remind us of the truths he's hit on all in this beautiful text of Scripture. Um, And now many scholars and theologians and pastors, they believe this to be kind of an old victory hymn or a victory poem that the early church would have uh, recited together. Um, Some people disagree with that, um, but it's all, all that to say it's rich. It has this exalted language. It's meant to be proclaimed. It's meant to be heralded um, because it's these powerful truths that are um, available to those who belong to Jesus. Um, All of these truths, they're meant to stir up believers' confidence and hope um, in their good and gracious God, who is far more committed to them than, than, uh, or he's far more committed to them than they are to him. In other words, uh, Paul's hope in tonight's passage is we can live securely, and I use that word on purpose, securely in God's promise to us and his love for us. Um, And to kick this thing off, uh, this fall, Uh, Abby and I have been watching a show that I have been hooked on. Uh, It's an old show with a new twist, The Golden Bachelor. So just think about that for a second. It's on the screen. There's the man himself. Um, And I'm confident who I am, and I'm unapologetic about this show. It's incredible. It'll hook you in. Uh, But for those of y'all who don't know how The Bachelor works, let me do a quick explanation. Many of the girls are like, Brian, I know this. I watch every Monday night or whatever night it comes on. Uh, The Bachelor, it's a single guy, usually in his 20s, kind of mid to early 20s, maybe 30s, who in a very real sense dates a variety of women at the same time. Um, And throughout the season, he slowly but surely begins to narrow that large number of women into a, uh, hopefully down to one, who he usually proposes to in that moment. 
and they are engaged. Now, whether they actually get married or not is up for interpretation, if that actually happens. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But the hope of the show, it's simple. Uh, that the bachelor would find true love with one woman to spend the rest of his life with. That's the premise of the show. But the golden bachelor has an interesting twist. Uh, it's all the same premise of the normal bachelor, but instead of a young single man, it's a 70-year-old single man or widowed man who serves as the bachelor who's dating about 20 or so women in their 60s to 70s. I think there was a woman who was 80 on this season, which is insane. I know, it's, <laughs> I know it sounds silly, but I mean, it captures you and it is incredible. And it's, it's taken America by storm this fall. Um, now the Golden Bachelor for this season, you see him on the screen. He is a man named uh, Gary. Gary is a, just your run of the mill, Midwestern retired man who's, one, who's looking for love in his 70s. As his wife of 40 plus years had, had died just a few years ago and he's ready to re-enter love whatever you want to call it. Um, and a few weeks ago, um, I was watching the show, and Gary, at this point, he was down to his final three women in an episode they call, if you're familiar with The Bachelor, Hometowns. Um, and so the premise of this episode is just as it sounds. Gary, uh, The Bachelor, he's, he's going to meet, uh, he's going with the women to their hometown to meet their families and to spend time with them in the place they grew up as he continues to try to figure out who's the one. And in this episode, as in true bachelor fashion, it revolves around the world, uh, word love. So what happens as Gary goes to each of these women's hometown and spends time with them and their families and their grandkids and their kids, golden bachelor, uh, they're going on dates together. They're spending a lot of time together. And um, in this particular episode, there's a moment, uh, almost like a romantic movie, and it revolves around that word love, where Gary looks uh, these women in the face, and for the first time, he tells them he loves them, which is incredible. Um, but there's, there's a moment with a particular woman named Faith. After spending a few days with Faith and her family, he meets her kids and her grandkids. They're going on dates together. Uh, right before he gets in the car to leave, he has a moment with Faith where he looks her dead in the eye, and for the first time he says, I love you. And then he gets in the car and leaves, which is awesome. Uh, you, can, you can only imagine the, the music in the background. Like they're setting the stage with like violins and whatnot in the background. All of, all of it's meant to get you in your feels and you begin to root for this woman. You're like, uh, man, I hope this girl wins. And at the end of this episode, you're like, I feel like this girl's the one. I feel like Faith's the one. She's going to be the one to take it home. Um, especially because he doesn't say I love you to all three women. He says it to two of them. There's one in particular he doesn't say those words to. And so you think when it comes down to the decision that he needs to make, she's gonna be at least one of the final two. Um, and they get to this rose ceremony, as you say, ladies, and uh, he's going to make a decision uh, to narrow the three down to two for the final episode where he'll choose the woman that he wants to propose to. Uh, but you would think as he hands these roses out, he's gonna pick this woman, Faith. He's, I just told, he just told her for the first time he loved her 24 hours before, I don't know, it could have been longer than that, but uh, just days before. Um, and it comes down between Faith and this other woman, Teresa, whom he had never said those words to. And so you're like, there's no way. There's no way, guys. There was a way. 
He, he sends Faith home and he tells Teresa, you're going to the finals. And the funny thing is, Teresa actually wins, spoiler alert. She's the one he picks. So if anything you get tonight, it's that. You know who won the Golden Bachelor. If they're a winner, I don't really know what the correct terminology is, but uh, he picks Teresa, not Faith. And I remember sitting there, watching him make this decision, seeing the woman um, who he, she had just heard him say, I love you to her. And in a moment, she's getting in a car to head home, heartbroken. And in that moment, I was reminded of the truth, about, of a truth about love. And I know this, that's a silly illustration, but the truth is still the same. Um, it's not real love if it doesn't last to the end. It's not real love if it doesn't move forward with commitment. It's a shallow love. It's a caricature of what love is meant to be. Because real love is affection when it meets commitment. Real love is affection when it meets commitment. And our passage tonight has something to say about real love, committed love. What it's gonna teach us tonight is this, God's love for us is secure. God's love towards those who are in Christ Jesus, it's settled. It's constant, it's fixed, it's committed. One that cannot be separated, regardless of how fickle our love might be in response to his. Regardless of the ever-changing circumstances around us. Those whom God sets his covenant affection on and love for, what we learned last week in verses 29 and 30 of Romans 8, who he sets his affection upon can be assured that his love is not fickle. It is committed and it's committed to the end. And so if I were to highlight the main overarching point for t- or thesis statement as I usually do for tonight's text, it would be this. Believers can live securely in the unchanging, unfailing, settled love of God towards them in Christ Jesus. You can live secure in his unchanging, unfailing, settled love towards you if you're in Christ Jesus. And if there was a single word that um, Paul has been trying to demonstrate or reiterate over and over in Romans 8, it's this word, confidence. Confidence. Over and over in these 39 verses, it's clear that Paul longs to encourage his readers not to allow their suffering, their sin, maybe their struggle, to cause them to question God's character and his disposition towards them, if they know Jesus. He wanted them to live confidently and securely in grace, experiencing the power and the freedom that that brings, empowered by God's spirit, motivated by God's hope. That's been his longing in this whole chapter, confidence. And so tonight we're going to journey through this passage um, in typical Brian form, looking at a handful of truths that help undergird this main point for us tonight to live securely in God's love. So first, God's love is for us. Second, God's love liberates us. Thirdly, God's love keeps us. So God's love is for us. God's love liberates us. God's love keeps us. And there's so much in this passage that we could highlight. This is only touching the surface level of this text. Um, But my hope is that you would leave marveling at these three truths. And I hope that they help you nail down in your hearts tonight as you walk out of this room for the last time until January, how God's love is committed to you if you're in Christ Jesus. So let's jump in. We got a lot to cover. So firstly, God's love is for us. 
God's love is for, for us. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Romans 8, obviously. Uh, grab those, grab your phones, turn to Romans 8. We'll begin reading the first couple of verses of our passage tonight, uh, verse 31 and 2, but this is what the text says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give him all things? What then shall we say about these things? You can take this question this way. What then are we to conclude about all this? So that's what Paul's saying in that first sentence. And in typical fashion, Paul's going to draw conclusions based on what he has walked through in Romans up to this point. Not just Romans 8, as I mentioned earlier, but all the way since Romans 1. So since Romans 1 through Romans 8, 30 are true, here are some conclusions for you. Here's some applications. Here's some truths for you to believe. And he begins with this question. And he's going he's gonna to ask a series of rhetorical questions. They're not actually meant to be answered. The answer is in the question themselves. And so the first rhetorical question he asks is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? So Paul, since Romans 1, all the way to Romans 1.16, he has systematically walked through his argument of the gospel message. One point at a time, communicating its truth and its application for our lives, for those who belong to Jesus. That gospel we just walked through last week in verses 28 through 30, that God foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us, and he will glorify us. If that gospel is true, it has some ramifications for our lives. If that gospel is true, it has truths for us to, to cling to in the midst of a broken and messy world. And Paul, in asking this first question, as I mentioned earlier, he's not expecting us to answer it. The answer is meant to be clear in his asking the question. The truth we're, we're told to believe is actually contained in the question itself. God is for us. So Paul isn't just saying that there, so Paul isn't saying that there aren't powers at work against us. Quite the contrary, actually. So Paul's not saying there's no power at work against us in the Christian life. The Romans who received this letter, they know full well, as the context you would know of Romans, uh, they know full well that there are forces and powers at work against them to hurt, to hurt them, to alienate them, to persecute them, to hinder their faith in Jesus. And as I've stated over and over throughout this series, they were experiencing extreme persecution and hardship for their allegiance to Jesus. So they knew the opposition was real. They knew that there were forces and works and powers out against them. There were powers longing to deform them spiritually, and it's true to, for us today. We may not experience the same persecution that they did. We may not experience the same opposition explicitly as they did, but we still have powers that work against us, both spiritually and physically. Powers longing to deform us spiritually, to call us to forsake Jesus and, and, and embrace the world that we live in and its, and its gospel. But what, the, but what the gospel proves to us is that though these powers and forces are at work against us still, even as redeemed, justified, called people, they cannot overtake or conquer us. Why? Because God is for us. God is the one for us. And that us that Paul uh, uses in the text um, isn't this broad sense of the word us. It's meant to mean those who belong specifically to Jesus. 
So those who have trusted in him, pledged their allegiance to him, those whom God has set his covenant affection, his covenant love upon, they can rest assured that though the enemies around them and powers that work against them are, are working, God is also fighting for them at the same time. God is on their side fighting for them. And the reason we can have confidence his love is for us is in verse 32. It's in the gospel message itself. This is what the text says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so Paul, he's arguing uh, from the greater to the lesser now. So if God was willing, the greater is God willing to give of generous, generously of his son for us, we can trust him to grant us what we need in the midst of a present broken world to make it to the end. So if he's made the greatest exchange, the greatest um, gift of giving us his son, we can trust him with the small provisions of this life and the great ones. We can have confidence that what we need to persevere in the midst of a world that is opposed to us, he'll grant us, he will provide us. So what we need to make it to the finish line, God, he will graciously give us because God's love is for you. So that's the first truth. Secondly, God's love liberates us. So God's love liberates us. Um, the, the truth of God's liberating love, it's been a theme throughout Romans 8. Um, and it's central truth to the gospel that we say we believe if we know Jesus. It's central to what we say we believe. God made sure as he was summing up his argument, um, God made sure that as Paul is summing up his argument from the beginning of the letter, he made sure to include it again. He made sure to include it again. Let's keep reading verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So you see, God's love towards you does much more for you than just pardon you from your sin. It does a lot more for you than get you out of hell. And I don't want to minimize that because those things are glorious and they're true. But there's so much more to the gospel we say we believe than that. Not only has God chosen to set his covenant affection and attention as a sign that he is for you, fighting for you against the schemes and powers and, and, and uh, schemes of, of this present world, not only that, but his love for you promises to liberate you from the accusations of your enemy. Satan, Satan's minions, the world, and ultimately even ourselves. And doesn't that sound familiar? That truth? All the way back in August when we covered it, it's exactly the truth that Paul was expounding on in the very first verse of Romans 8, where he says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The truth is, um, in Scripture, Satan is always, um, he's always referred to as what? The accuser. That's actually what Satan means, the accuser. Every day there, there are times where Satan seeks to remind you of your sin. He seeks to remind you of your brokenness in hopes that it would cause you to forget the gospel and forsake Jesus and cling to him cling to his hope. He loves to charge us with the sin that we've committed in hopes that we begin to find our identity in our sin, not in Jesus. It's actually his, his favorite job. It's his favorite thing to do. But for those who know Jesus, in other words, those whom, whom God's love rests upon, that accusation doesn't have the final say over us, does it? 
what Paul reminds us as, and or his readers and even us today as we read this almost 2,000 years later is this, because God's love is over us and he is for us, therefore God doesn't count our sin against us. I know that seems kind of simple, not very profound. And the argument Paul is making here is it's pretty simple. He's, this is the argument he's making. If all sin is against God primarily, that's Psalm 51, four, verse 4 says that. All of our sin is primarily against God before it's against anyone else. And if that's true, and if that's the truth, that it's all against God, and he's acquitted us, redeemed us by the justifying work of Jesus in our place, therefore, Satan has no place to make accusation against those who belong to him or to Jesus. In other words, who can condemn God's elect, God's chosen? So not only has Jesus paid the price for you, he's also ascended to the Father's right hand, our passage tells us tonight, and the book of Hebrews makes it clear in, verse, in chapter 7. He, it says that Jesus now lives in heaven, ever making intercession for us. What that means simply is this. Every time Satan accuses you, reminds you of your sin before God the Father. Jesus pleads your case for mercy every time. And his intercession is always, I'll repeat that, it's always effective. God always answers his son in the affirmative. Why? Because Jesus right now in heaven, whenever we sin, he comes before our heavenly Father, God the Father, and he declares that I've paid the price for that. I've justified that. I've redeemed that. Not, not just every sin now, but even the sin of our future lives as well. So who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The answer, nobody with effectiveness. God will never allow Satan's accusations to lead to condemnation for God's children. Not once. So why should we? We allow that to happen. The application is clear. Walk in the grace that you've, you've been given. Live, at, live in light of mercy. Allow his gospel of grace to penetrate you. And when you believe that truth, it frees you up to live the Christian life, to actually pursue obedience and life with Jesus with boldness, with confidence. Confident you're forgiven and that there's mercy for you when you fail, because you will. Boldness to respond to the accusations of your enemy, Satan, the world, and yourself. When they say you're condemned, you're actually bold and confident to believe that that's not true. You're actually graciously forgiven. So you don't have to give the accuser your attention. You don't have to give the accuser your ear. You can rest in Jesus' grace and mercy. So that's the second truth that liberates us. Lastly, God's love keeps us. God's love keeps us. So this truth is um, what emerges from the first two points of tonight's message, or the first two truths that we've hit on. You could say it kind of serves as the uh, culmination of the first two. It's the climax of Paul's uh, argument in Romans 8. So let's keep reading in our text, uh, beginning at verse 35, where it says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Small note, the Romans were experiencing all of those things in a very real way when he wrote this. So they hear that and they know this is what I'm actually experiencing. But let's keep reading verse 36. As it is written, 
For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's Psalm, I think, 44. Uh, Verse 37, no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Paul's train of thought in this passage, it's pretty simple. Nothing um, can separate God's children from God's love for them. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? That's how he begins verse 35. A rhetorical question. We're meant to know the answer. And as I mentioned at the beginning, um, he wants us to see that it's obvious in the question itself. So nothing, not pain, not sorrow, not trials, not suffering, not hardship, persecution, sin that we commit, sin done against us, can remove God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And actually, suffering and trial are actually a means to greater communion with God. They're actually uh, means to greater glory for the believer. We've learned that throughout this fall semester in this series, that suffering and pain um, are what Jesus actually experienced. Jesus had to suffer to be glorified. He had to suffer in order to resurrect. He had to suffer in order to ultimately triumph. And if we're his followers, we're going to walk in the same steps. So suffering is actually one of God's primary means of making us more like Jesus. We've learned that all throughout this semester, but I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus on a truth that's actually inferred from the text. It's not as explicit, but I think it centers on those last three verses, 37 through 39, that God's love is for you if you're in Christ Jesus, and his love is secure. It is settled, and it's eternal. And it's what theologians and scholars call Uh, the simple phrase, eternal security of the believer. It simply means that when God sets his love upon you, his covenant affection for you, there's nothing that can be done that will cause him to remove that love. Not a sin you commit, not a trial you face, not a sin committed against you, Nothing at all can separate you from that love. Because this is the truth. We learned last week that there's nothing we did in order to receive God's grace. God chose to display his glory by granting his his grace before we ever believed. Or at least enlivening our spirit so that we could believe. God was the first mover in our salvation. We learned that last week. But the inference from that truth is this. There's nothing that we can do to lose that love if there's nothing we've done to gain it. If there's nothing we've done to merit or earn God's love, then there's nothing we can do to lose that love. Think about that for a second. Let that truth permeate your heart. God is so committed to you, he refuses to let you go. Despite how much you fight it at times. Look at Jesus' own words in John 6. He says this in verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, what? I will never cast them out. I will never. Actually, that never. It's emphatic in the Greek. I will never cast them out. Or again in John 10, he says this, verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. 
No one is able to snatch those who belong to my father from him. What a prof- that's a profound reality that, we're, that I don't think we'll fully ever, ever grasp on this side of heaven. Many Christians, myself included, we walk around on our toes when it comes to uh, God's love for us. We walk around kind of uh, pessimistic, questioning, doubting. We feel as if when we're getting it all right, whatever that means, getting it all right spiritually, then God's love is really on us. It's really evident. But when we're failing and we're giving ourselves over maybe to that particular sin, maybe that's particular struggle, maybe we're failing to live out this whole Christianity thing well, we begin to question his love. He couldn't really love me. Look what I've done. But what this passage declares to us is that God's love for us, it isn't determined by anything that we do. Or or is it determined by anything done to us as well? And the question I have is, do you actually believe that? In your soul, do you believe that? That God doesn't come to you, tell you he loves you, then reject you. He doesn't do that. And when God tells you he loves you, he means it forever. And if he loves you, there are certain things he promises you. When God's loves, or when God sets his affection on someone, he commits. He's all in to the very end. Despite all the ways that we may try to screw it up. And we do a pretty good job of that. We can actually rest securely in his love for us. And so as we bring this glorious chapter of Romans 8 to its conclusion, I have a few um, closing applications or truths for us tonight in light of what we learned. Not just tonight, but all semester. Applications in light of all of Romans 8 for us that we've been learning throughout the fall. And they'll be on the screen. First, you are not too broken to be loved. Maybe you've never really gotten a chance to experience real, generous, selfless love in your life. From your parents, maybe from uh, brothers and sisters, a significant other. Maybe others have actually declared you unlovable by their words and actions. But what Romans 8 declares to you is that it's a lie. That is the accuser, and our accuser, and he's lying to you. The truth is that God's love is actually available to, to you if you haven't received it through uh, repentance and faith. He actually loves the messy and broken parts about you. It's actually those parts that he wants most. That's what's the paradox of the gospel. They are means to receiving more of his love, actually. Believe that. Secondly, live out of who God declares you to be, a.k.a. who you actually are. Over and over in Romans 8, and even really in our passage tonight, uh, Paul and God, he's declaring truths about our identity, who we actually are, that we're not condemned, we're actually forgiven, liberated by the person and work of Jesus. We are not defeated. We're actually conquerors through the power of the gospel. We are not our sin. We are actually our our Savior's chosen and beloved. We are not guilty. We are actually seen as righteous and holy right now. God sees you that way by the blood of Jesus. We are not left as orphans. We are actually adopted as God's children. We are not what the world or others declare about us. We are, what, we are actually who Jesus declares that we are. So what God declares about us is actually the most intrinsically true thing about us. Though we live in a messy and broken world and though we still experience messiness and brokenness and sin in our own lives, God views us 
as righteous, set apart, loved, perfectly and eternally and securely. And we get to live out of that identity. That's the call of Romans 8. Live out of who you actually are, how God actually sees you. So that's the second one. Next, walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. I actually had a really long sentence for this, and I changed it to this, made it a little simpler for you. If you know Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is actually in you right now, and his power is available to you to walk in freedom from your sin. That's actually true. So not only are you not, no longer defined by your sin, you actually have the power to say no to it as you move forward. Just believe that. You don't have to live enslaved to it. You can live as a conqueror of it. You, can, you actually are called to walk in that power. Live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Next, God is at work in the messiness of your life. This truth, as I mentioned earlier, it has been repeated over and over and over in Romans 8. Your pain, your confusion, your toil, your hardship, your suffering, your sin, your struggles, they're all evidences that, uh, they're not evidences that God is against you. Rather, they're the main, the main means of him making you more and more and more like Jesus. They are evidences of his divine love and commitment to you, not evidences that he doesn't love you. His promises and purposes for you are to conform you more into the image of Jesus, to make you more like his son, and sometimes he uses those means to accomplish it. So God is at work in the messy areas of your life. Next, this is a long one, so bear with me. What you need in your walk with Jesus is an ever-growing understanding and experience of his committed love towards you. What you need, and I would even put what you need most in your walk with Jesus is an ever-growing understanding and experience of his committed love towards you. So what Romans 8 teaches us is that if we're ever going to make it in a messy and broken world and experiencing messy and broken lives ourselves, we need an ever-growing understanding and awareness of the gospel. That's what we need. We must be saturated with gospel hope. We must be saturated with gospel confidence. You don't need anything more than Jesus. You just need more of Jesus. From now into eternity, when you see him face to face, what you need is an ever-growing awareness and experience of his love. That's what you need primarily in your walk with Jesus. So next, for those who don't know this love that we've covered all semester, it's available to you. If you're in the room and you can't say with any confidence that you've trusted in Jesus, that you've believed in his gospel, right now he's inviting you to do so. All it takes is running to his feet, confessing your need for his mercy and grace, and then placing your, your faith. Faith, pistis, is a Greek word that means actually allegiance, primarily. Uh, confess your need, place your faith in him. Um, and he says that right then in that moment he'll all of these truths that we've been hitting on all semester are yours in Christ Jesus right then. And then lastly, God can be trusted. God can be trusted. Maybe more of the, or maybe one of the most implicit but yet most powerful truths of Romans 8 um, is this. God keeps his word. God keeps his word. He keeps his promises. He doesn't fail to bring about his purposes. So even in the midst of a world and maybe even a life 
that oftentimes is full of struggle and pain, questions and doubts and emotions and concerns, God can be trusted with what's next. You don't have to muster up the power necessary to endure this world. You actually don't. So even in the midst of a world in life that tells you um, to embrace trusting only in yourself, that's what the world's trying to form you to do. Trust in yourself. You're the only one who's trustworthy. What Romans 8 is telling us is that you have all you need if you come and you collapse into the arms of your heavenly father. Believe that what he tells you is true and cling to his promises with hope. That's all you need to make it in this, in this messy world. And that's what Romans 8 has taught us all semester is that God can be trusted. And so we're gonna move into a time of reflection um, as we think and ponder on these truths. Maybe there's one that sticks out to you. Maybe there's one that's ringing true more in your, in your heart and life. Maybe there's something from the text that you've been gleaning yourself as we've journeyed this semester. This time is meant to be a time of um, bringing those things to your heavenly father who not only hears you, but he longs to answer those things in the affirmative if um, they align with his will. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll move into a time of reflection. Father, thank you for your word. That you are a God who is far more committed to us than we are to you. First Timothy says that if we are faithless, you are faithful for you cannot um, reject yourself. And so Father, would we believe that? If there's anything Romans 8 taught us, it's that you are far more committed to us than, you, than we are to you and that you're a God who's worthy of our trust, who keeps his word. And so, Father, I pray for each and every one of these students in the room that in a very tangible, real way tonight, in these precious next moments of reflection, they would get an acute awareness of your love for them and that they would leave this room tonight with an ever-growing awareness, an ever-growing experience of that settled, consistent, constant, secure love. And Jesus, would we operate out of that? In Jesus' name I pray.